Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 352, and I had a conversation with Malcolm Christie. Malcolm was raised by a loving single mom, but still experienced family violence and emotional upheaval. He was determined to not let the negative define him. As he navigated school, he came up against bad teachers, sports injuries, and criticisms that motivated him to prove any doubters wrong. He's a champion for the differently abled and marginalized communities and is currently writing his memoir, which will come out next year, spring. There's a trigger warning for this episode of Domestic Violence. Check out Hey Human Podcast for links, Hey Human merch, and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out SusanRuth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my albums on Apple Music or wherever you get your music. My most recent record, all I ever wanted was everything, but I do have four albums, so there's lots to choose from. Also, check out my relationships and sex show, Are We There Yet?, with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman. Uh, it's at YouTube slash Are We There Yet? podcast show. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It's super helpful, and I really appreciate it. Hey Human is an ad-free show. Your donations help keep it going. You can find the contribute button on heyhumanpodcast.com. All right. Thank you for listening. Be well. Be kind. Take care of each other. Be love. Grow. And here we go. Malcolm Christie, welcome to Hey Human. Hey, great to be here. Thank you for having me. And we just met through mm-hmm. your lovely girlfriend, Andy. Yes, and yes, yes. She was on the show just a couple of weeks ago. Well, listen, I'm happy to be here. She, it was an amazing opportunity for her. She loved it. And she was, it was very was enjoyable great. for her. So she's got a hell of a story. And now it's yeah. time for your story. Where are you sure. from originally? I'm originally from Jersey City, New Jersey. You can't get much more Jersey than Jersey City. I'm right across the river from Manhattan, about, oh, about 10, less than 10 miles. What was childhood like? It was, you know, listen, I grew up in a single parent home. Um, we grew up in a very poor area in Greenville area in, in Jersey City. Um, it was difficult because obviously a single parent uh, household because my, uh, my father, he was, um, uh, not in the home and that was a good thing well basically what happened was i was four years old and i had scarlet fever which is kind of a biblical type of disease a <laughs> thing basically you your skin peels and you have really really horrendous fevers and i was laying in my mom's bed and i my father who sporadically would show up as a very aggressive man my mom was i was in my mom's bed overlooking the hallway and i could see the silhouette of both of them and he I could tell that there was it was getting um, uh, confrontational, and eventually, my you know, he basically assaulted my mother, and I watched. He basically beat her to the point where uh, he, he, you know, basically broke her leg. And I'm watching this, you know, as a four year old going five, um, who, you know, again with the fever and watching that. And I didn't know if I was having a hallucination or whatever. And I remember my mom crawling to me 
and looking over me on the, on the bed and I kept my eyes closed because I was ashamed. And she looked down at me and kissed me on the forehead and said, I'm okay. It's all right. And I, I just act like I was asleep because there was shame because I felt like, you know, I should have did something. I know that as ridiculous as that is. Um, yeah, I felt, so that was kind of the uh, maturation of, of a lot of things about my life and how violence um, really, in one way or another, was a part of my life and, and decisions I had to make based upon that. So, you know, being physically large, I was always a big kid. I was, I was huge. <laughs> I mean, I was like, my first grade teacher, I remember Ms. Boyle, when I went to the University of Iowa on scholarship. She sent me a picture when we went to uh, the Bronx Zoo. And she said, I always knew you would be successful because you were always head and shoulders above everyone. And then they showed the picture of me. I literally look like one of the chaperones. <laughs> I think so much bigger. So my, my size and my physicality was always in, at, you know, at the forefront of my life and how not only for myself, but how other people perceive me. How did you carry around that trauma as a kid? How did it manifest in you? I, it's, it's one of those things where I, I just kind of recoil from violence. I think you can go two ways. You can either be very violent. And I can remember as a kid, I stayed in the house a lot because we lived in a very um, violent neighborhood. And, and my brother, who was older than me, was getting in trouble. He was five years older than me. And I, I, didn't, I, I wanted to make my mom happy and I wanted to please her. So I said, well, I can't get in trouble if I, I don't leave the house. So I was about nine or 10, and I would watch um, talk shows. I'd be lonely. So I watched the Dinah Shore show. I watched, uh, you, know, you know, David Susskind, Merv Griffin, you know, anything. And I watched the Phil Donahue show. I was like, oh my God, I, lo I love Phil. And to be honest, my Caden, how I talk is somewhat like his because I decided to, to copy him. And I remember him doing a show where, they talked about domestic violence and saying how if young men who witness it are more likely to be violent. And I'm sitting there going, well, Phil says that's wrong, so I shouldn't do it. So that was a pretty profound moment. So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be violent. And that's kind of how it manifested in me. So I was really passive and being large and passive wasn't very good because people make the assumption you're weak, not because you made an edict as a 10 year old watching you know, morning television, not to be a violent person. And so that became this thing where you're all of a sudden you're soft because you're not violent, which makes no sense whatsoever. But that's kind of the hyper masculinity that we, we still do with today. Of, you know, you must be tough because you're violent. You must be strong because you're aggressive, which is insane. Did your dad come around much after that incident? Um, Yes, uh, not much. I, I'm writing a book, so I have an opportunity to talk about, I'm sure I came around more, but during the, what I, how I kind of manifested into like four different interactions. The one, the, obviously the one with the violence of my mother, the, when I was five, four or five. And then when I was like seven, when he uh, came over and brought me a bike, and I never wrote it. You know, I just never did. Just didn't want it. And the next time I saw him, I was, I think I was 12. 
at that time, my mom was working like nights at a pocketbook factory in, in, off the turnpike in Jersey, uh, right off Jersey City. And she would come home about, you know, on that, well, about 1230 bus. And so we had like on the second floor, we would have a uh, enclosed sun porch. You know, was, you know there was the owner of the home lived on the first floor. We lived on the second floor. Well, prior to that night, um, I was walking down Jackson Avenue in Jersey City and it was on Sunday. And my father's six foot four, wide shoulders, but he's, he's lean. And I knew what he looked like because we look alike in a lot of ways. Um, and he, I, I knew his face. And he, and it's funny, on a Sunday, the funny thing in New Jersey, liquor stores are closed. So, you know, for some reason they are. And maybe our Puritan uh, background in our <laughs> whatever started that. But we're closed on Sundays. And I went by a liquor store that had those little, you know, you know, stereotypical gates where you pull clothes. that kind of look like, and they use like a kind of X's and stuff. And there's my dad. And he grabs me by my throat. And he slams me against the gate and he says, where's your mother? And I wasn't going to tell him what my mother was. And he says, you know, his eyes were red and glassy and angry and the brow. And he said, when you see your mother, tell him I'm a killer. And I'm sitting here going like, I haven't seen this man in you know, three or four years. And the first thing he said, he's going to kill my mother. So I obviously, I didn't tell my mom that. But what I decided to do is wait up every night and because I could overlook the avenue. Jackson Avenue from my sun porch, and I would watch for her bus to come, and I would stand there with a knife. And then if I saw someone come out, I just run over there and fight. I was going to fight this time. And subsequently, you know, time went on, and I would do it. And one night, I fell asleep. And then, like, you know, I was twelve. I mean, eleven, twelve. You're going to fall asleep. And my mom was working was working late that night, and I looked. On the avenue, I looked like someone was laying down and things I ran over there. It was just strewn garbage. But um, subsequently, she ended up getting a job working the days and then that had passed. And then the last time I saw my father, this was after, you know, I started playing football, which is a little ahead of the story here, but I started playing football. Um, I was very good at it. I was a high school American. I was, you know, interviewed by the Wall Street Journal, New York Times. Diane Sawyer, all these things. And I went into um, the barbershop, you know, which is just like stereotypically like the, the, the neighborhood barbershop. Now, we've been living in that neighborhood seven years. And obviously, I went in there. They were going to cut my hair. And then they were very proud of me. And, and the gentleman said, hey, no, you got to pay me. Just give me a tip. And I gave him a tip. And who comes walking in? My father. Yeah, this is my son. This is my son. And then everybody stared at him like, his mom had been bringing him and his older brother in here for the last seven years. And MF, I don't know who the hell you are. And my father stared at me and said, tell him I'm your father. I said, now I'm 6'6", 320 pounds. I'm like, I just kind of laughed at him. So I'm walking down the street and... um you know, you could figure out if somebody's walking up behind you. You, you, you someone had that spider sense going on in the neighborhood. And who was it? My father, he grabbed me by my shoulder, turned me around and stuck his finger in my face and said, why did you embarrass me like that? And I sat there and went, okay, this ends now. So he always wore a hat. He always wore a fedora. 
And I just, I remember picking him up by his throat and by the scruff of his shirt and picking him up. And it's like one of those uh, street signs, those street lights that hang over the gray pole, the hollow gray pole, the streets all hang over. And I remember it started getting dark by that time. So the lights were coming on. So I picked them up and slammed them against the pole. He's off the ground and his head hit the pole. His hat fell off. His head hit the pole. And I made it a point not to say a word until the ringing stopped from him hitting his head. And I said, I got, you know, I said, listen, and my father was named Richard. They call him Dickie. I said, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you three things. One, I said, don't even come near me again. Two, don't ever put your hands on me. And three, if you ever go near my mother, I will kill you. And I looked at him and he was terrified. Kind of looked like my mom did when he was beating her. And I threw him under the ground. And that's the last time I ever seen my father. Yeah, because bullies are cowards, ultimately. Yeah. yeah. So, and so I, I have no idea where he is. I have no idea what he's doing. Um, but yeah, he, that, that's the last time I ever had any, any interaction with him. That must have felt incredibly empowering. It did, but I felt like I went to his level. Mm. I and get it, that. Scared, it scared me because mm-hmm. it was powerful. But I kind of quarantined that as kind of like that's a pass. You got to pass on that one. That was your father, and and but not to you know have that be a, a way of life. But yeah, I, I knew that time that it was you know that was it. So that was the last time I ever saw my father, and never really thought of him other than passing ever again and never had any inclination my mom i think has run into him over the years and he was he'd be nice you know he's an old man and and you know and just trying to say he's nice and all these things and i would sit there and go you know my mom go well you know it's your dad i'm like mom i, I really don't have to you know i'm like it's my mom I go, okay mom okay that's fine yeah but that's that's pretty much the the juxta of any of these things did so, your older brother have experiences like that with your dad? Well, my my uh, older brother, um, his father is different. Like I said, he's five and a half years older than me from a different relationship. And um, his dad wasn't in the picture either. So it was one of those things where my mom had, you know, until she met my stepfather, um, had two really bad relationships with our, with, with our, our um, these biological, you know, fathers. Stepdad was okay? Yeah, he was good. I think when you're young, when I think when you get to a certain age, um, I didn't look because I had my uncles. My mom had uh, three sisters and four brothers. Wow. So I had, yeah, so it, I had uncles that really stepped in and really helped me in life to kind of figure out what I wanted to do. You know, my young, like when I was younger, my uncle John, my uncle Avon was very much um, involved in. It. And then my uncle by marriage, Vincent, he married my aunt Brenda. Um, was really uh, uh, from like 12 to 17 was a really good influence on me. So I was very lucky to have those things. So when I had my stepfather, I'm kind of like, make my mom happy. That's that, that she's happy. That's all I care about. And it's, you know, we can just be, you know, cordial and all stuff is, you know, I'm, I'm pretty easy. So, I mean, I, I'm just going to do my thing and do whatever. It's going to be very, you know, and, and especially again, my brother was still having issues 
um, you know, getting in trouble and things like that. So I was just sitting there trying to make things as easy as possible. So long as he was good to my mom and he was good to my mom until he passed, they were together uh, 33 years before he passed away. So they were, you know, and my mom's still alive. She's 80. And so, but that was the most important thing for me. So he was happy. She was happy. I was happy. And he was, you know, and you know, that was, that was good enough for me. What's your stepdad's name? Uh, Kenny. 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 Johnson. And my mom is a Johnson now. And, um, yeah, so that, that was important to me. He, and I was, um, very, uh, you know, just immensely grateful that she, my mom had you know, companionship and happiness as yeah. much as what she has gone through. My, my mother's name is Dorothy. Hi, Dorothy. <laughs> did you, because of your size, did you start getting, you know, looked looked over by the coaches at junior high and high school i know for me i was six foot uh by 14 and oh, was wow. pursued by the volleyball coach <laughs> oh, no. you, I, I, I would think so did you yeah. have that the people starting to sniff around saying oh have you thought about sports oh um when i was a kid um, my brothers and my two older cousins anthony Barron, um they were brothers and my older brother andre um, they played for the uh, peewee football team, the Jersey City Jets. Well, technically, I could have played for them being five years younger than them because I might, I was fat. I was big. So I, I would have made the weight limit by me playing with people considerably older than me. So I played basketball from an early point of, you know, from, you know, the AAU uh, basketball. So I have very long, I'm six foot five, six, six. I, I grew that long, but my arm, my wingspans, and I have a one, one of my arms is like 41 inches and my other arm is 42. So I have like a, a 10 foot, you know, you know, seven feet. I mean, it's ridiculous. We had a seven footer at, on, at Iowa and I had longer arms than him when we stuck our arms out, which was insane. Good for pass blocking, but not good for anything else in life. Not good for suit finding. No, 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 no. You had when you're when you're when you're that big before they had a, a big and tall. You basically had burgundy, black, navy, and good luck pants. So that's all you really had when growing up. So I knew that. But yeah, I was pursued um, in high school in grade school uh, by a storied uh, basketball uh, program called St. Anthony's. In Jersey City, it was, it's, it's a, it, unfortunately, St. Anthony doesn't exist anymore. It's parochial school, which is, I can't believe it. But Bob, Hur uh, Coach Hurley was, you know, Bob Hurley who played basketball, his son and stuff played for Duke and all those things. Um, and I was pursued there to play basketball and I was really good, but I was sitting there going, and you know, I was 300 pounds by the time I got to high school. You being power forward? Oh, I've been, I've been something. But I just realized I knew I had to lose weight if I played basketball. I said, let me see, I can either gain weight and play football <laughs> or start to lose weight and play basketball. I'm just kind of playing the average there. Hilarious. Like, you feel good. I, I think I'm a gain. And, and, but the basketball really helped me with my feet. I had great feet and I could, you know, and so the basketball was immensely great about that. And then eventually I, you know, I went to an academic high school. My, uh, my mom worked for the city, so it was like one of those things where she didn't want me to go to a really scary high school, the public high school. So she said, well, I said, well, she sent me to this place called uh, Academic High School, which is eventually turned into McNair High School now. Uh, a great, a great, it, it was like a magnet school. It was, um, 
and which I don't know how I got in there because of my mother and politics, but I shouldn't have been in there. I mean, let's be honest. I did. I was not that, you know, I was, I'm dyslexic. I couldn't read very well. I, I hid that my whole life that I could not read very well. And I, I was able to, like I said, one of those things where I could, I knew what the word, by watching all those talk shows, I knew what the word pejorative meant. I, God forbid you asked me to spell it. Mm. Um, and I knew at that time that, you know, English, I was talking, I went to the dentist recently. I just, I'm getting, a, I got Invisalign, I'm almost done with it. But uh, one of my, uh, my, my dentists, she's from India, um, that I'm getting some work done in the office. And I said, you know, it's really tough. You know, I know English is not your first language, but I understand why English is tough because I got away with things by what they sound like, but there's certain words to sound alike. Homonyms mm -hmm. like, will trick you up. Well, it's like two, wind. two, two, and two, there, there, and there. Oh, the, a thought, th thorough, uh, when? Thorough, yeah. Mm -hmm. When, W I N D, W H E N, W I N. Weather and weather. There's a ton of them. And so I would just have, so I would just sit there and speak in a lot of the vernacular way I talk now. But when I write, I would write either, you know, these really flowery stories that were amazing or write like I was Tarzan. Hmm. You know, it was either one or the other because I had to use these flowery ways to tell a story because if I could, I, you know, my teacher said, oh my God, he's so creative. I said, no, I'm not creative. I just couldn't spell a word. So I had to, <laughs> I had to work around this word to find, you know, and that's why I had to tell a story. You know, it's like the old saying, you tell me, I asked you what time it is. You, you tell me how to build a clock. That's why I ended up doing things like that. And I would hide the fact that I couldn't read very well, but mm -hmm. I ended up going to Dickinson high school and, you know, it just didn't go well. And, and you I, put, so you started playing that. football in high school. I didn't play, yeah, I, but not at Dickinson. They didn't have a, a, mm -hmm. a football team. So eventually I failed out and I probably had one of the more traumatic things happened to me in Dickinson, but I, it, it, it's like a part of the whole high school experience. But I had this gentleman, he, um, he, you know, again, it was one of like, the best students in the world. It's like, it's like the UN of you know, all the, you know, Italian, English, you know, you know, it had all these different ethnic white people and you had Latino and African-American and all these different people. And, and then we had this teachers, like the best of the best teachers. It was like really like, and it was an African-American man um, from England. So, you know, he was smart because they sound smart. And they all smart, you know, and so you're like, oh, my God, he's great. And he did not like me at all. And I was, you know, I think he was, I was an athlete and a big guy or whatever. And I think so he would, it was an English class and he would go out of his way to embarrass me. Um, he basically knew I had a problem spelling. And what he would do is make me read aloud Shakespeare and humiliate me. And I think my, my classmates, I knew, knew he was humiliating. And they all liked me. I was a likable person. That's one thing about being dyslexic. You need to be friendly because you need help all the time. And so he would humiliate me that time. And one time, and we had this like, uh, the, the, the period would end like, uh, but through automatically. It didn't matter when it hit that you know, the, the clock hit that second, the bell went off. So one day near the end of this thing, I was spelling, it was January. He wanted me to spell February. I was just like, oh, great. So I looked and we had 16 seconds left. So I said, well, February, I said, capital F-E-B, 
period. And then they, the period went off and then, well, which was hilarious. Everyone started laughing. Well, he got me back the next day and he humiliated me. And he told me, he said, you know, Mr. Christie, you don't belong in this class. You don't belong in this school. You will never graduate high school. And you will never go to college. Oh, my God. A teacher said this to you? Yeah. Ugh. So I sat there and one of my team, one of my classmates, ironically, who was he, you know, he um, was a really you know, nice guy. He eventually followed me to Dickinson High School eventually. But um, he is now a really great author. Uh, he's, um, um, and I guess you would, I, I mean, what I said, the, his first claim to fame, which he's done so much more since then. He just had a book just come out um about uh poems to his mom like you know like you know his mother but um his he was uh kevin he was on the original real world uh the african-american gentleman on there that's kevin powell and he was my classmate and we recently talked about that whole incident with dickinson high school and what he was yeah i mean it was just it was crazy he, he witnessed it so it was like yeah it was crazy why do you so, think that teacher had it out for you so much i think i was this jovial I, I kid that was an athlete because I played basketball there and I was through the discus there and I was like, I won medals for the freshman records and things like that in Jersey city, the discus. And I think I was just the personification of the black male athlete and him coming from England, he just did not like it. And I'm just spitballing here. I just assumed that I was like that and he just didn't he felt that they got pushed through school and and i'm sure there's some aspects of it but i think he kind of broke his what his charter should be is to not put children down because i wasn't a bad kid i was never a bad kid you know so i didn't understand why he would do that mm. but i i i i know why i don't understand why he did it but i know why he did it. yeah you know, yeah, so, and that's why I ended up going to Dickinson and started playing football there. And again, I never played football at all until I got to Dickinson High School. And Coach Lisa, um, uh, God bless him, saw potential in me. You know, he saw that you could. I was really athletic for being so big because I played bas you know basketball and I played baseball and I you know chased around kids my age, but they were a lot smaller, so I had to be better at you know being quick. And, you know, he stuck with me, you know, my sophomore year was tough because I just didn't know what I was doing. I was standing up all the time and doing, you know, which you should not, you should stay low and do whatever. But I, you know, just from pure, you know, just pure athleticism, I went into my sophomore year and I went into my junior year and then I started getting better and better and better. And then next thing you know, I had an opportunity to, you know, to go to school and to, and just to be a part of the, have the opportunity to go to the next level and have my choices. And it's so weird because I didn't make all city. I didn't make all County. It was so political. They all, for some reason. And but I was an all American consensus, all American. I was a parade, all American parade magazine, USA today, all American. Yeah. And, and so of course, when um, Dickinson Heights, um, well, Jersey city had this thing where, you had to have a C average and no abs to be able to participate in their ritual 
curricular activities. I said, well, I was a a senior class president and played on the football team and I failed English. Shocking. And uh, I'm dyslexic for God's sakes. And so no one, no one along the way said this kid must be dyslexic or it was because you were trying to hide it. And so I hit it. I hit, I, I remember when I was, uh, I took the California achievement test when I was in fifth grade. And I realized I wasn't in the challenge group. I wasn't in the advanced group. I was like dead in the middle, which I said, cool, I can hide here. Mm-hmm. And being very charming, I would do this thing with my teacher that I would raise my hand. I would always get to read first. I was like, great. Well, what I, that which meant during reading day, I would get up at three in the morning and memorize everything, which was stressful. And you know, but that's what I was able to negotiate. And so I said, well, I'm lucky to have that. So one time, which I did not think ahead, we had a big flu epidemic. So half the kids are out. So I'm, I'm done. I'm feeling good about myself. I got to do another week. Well, it was my turn to read again. Mm-hmm. And so I had a choice, either stumble through and let them know I had a problem. Or tip my chair back and go to the nurse, hit my head, and get stitches. That's what you did? Yeah, that's what I did. Oh, my God. (laughs) Well, no, I think shame will do a lot of things to you. And I I said, you know, I'm not going to be big, black, football player, and dumb, like the idiot hat trick in life so so i was like no i'm not doing that so i'm i'm gonna make sure that no one and that was thing so i ended up going on the diane uh, uh, cbs morning news with diane sawyer and i knew at that time i always wanted to be on tv i said tv and i'm like well this is it i watched that and i gotta say you said something so poignant when she was during that interview and i'll post it on link's page so people Uh can watch it but you said that by putting that that you were for the idea that students should do well in school along with their sports activity but you said but it doesn't take into consideration that some kids learn differently i mean i'm paraphrasing you but that's basically what you were saying and i wanted her to say what do you mean but of course she didn't say what Mm -hmm. do you mean and it just kind of hung there and i thought that's such a profound thing to say and truly ahead of its time I don't know what year that was, but now, you know, we know that that's the case, that all kids learn at different paces. And I was trying to out myself in a way that said, yeah. if they were, if she was said, why? I said, well, this is what I do, which is very unhealthy. And I. And also, by the way, you look like a 40 year old man. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. So when you said that you looked older, I was like, this guy is in high school. I know, oh but with that big old line of Richie hello hair. I was, oh, it's amazing. I just, but that's what I realized at that time. I said to myself, I said, if I'm not going to do well on TV now, no, I'm going to do something else. I'm not going to pursue something like that. And then I remember I was done and she looked at me and she's like, uh, you know, they, they stopped the filming and. And then she said, you did so great. You did. You did really you well. Did. She yeah. said, you, you. She, on the other hand, did not do well because a good interviewer would say, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. And then let you tell. Well, I, I think the problem was that 
I remember we were going on and the segment producer, which I didn't know that's where the segment producer was, but I was walking on and we were walking on with the superintendent of school, Dr. Ross, and we were sitting down and right before we sat down, she said, you know, they're doing this to you because you're black. Really? I looked at, and oh my God, Dr. Ross was like, oh my God. I was like, I looked at him like, don't worry about it. It's not going to turn into a, you know, like a, I don't know, like a, one of those like crazy screaming matches and something. You mean like, like she brought she she was insinuating they brought you on the show because you're black? No, they're saying that the that this whole thing that they're doing with grades and stuff oh, is racist. I see. And I'm like, no, it's not. It seems like that. It seems like the the implementing of such a thing is actually to tell kids, hey, you're worth more than just a punching bag of sports that your brain is worth something and that you can achieve greatness outside of the sports arena. It seems like the opposite of. And that's what, that's why I knew I looked at the uh, Dr. Ross. I said, I'm not, I'm not taking the bait. That guy was so no nonsense. Oh oh, yeah. He, yeah. He was like, Malcolm will have no problem. (laughs) I was like, good answer. So tired. So scared. Uh, (laughs) I was just like, don't worry. I was like, dude, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And I was just like getting there trying to make him say, it's just TV. You know, it'll be fine. And he looked at me and then I realized, you know, I took responsibility. I said, I'm not going to, you know, people said, well, you took responsibility and said that you failed. Like, well, I'm on there because I failed because I, I'm not going to sit there and pretend it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And they were like, you know, I failed and this is what happened. And, but when I, I think she was not prepared is when I left, you know, the stage and I was sitting um, just standing out there waiting to leave. They sent a limo to take me back to Jersey City, back, whatever. And I saw this African American um, janitor. And I said, Hey, what's up? And he's like, What's up? He said, And he, he was counting money, which I thought was weird. I said, I said You hit the lot? I said, You hit the number? You know, just try this. He's like, No, they, and I, I realized they said that he was in like near the, like the control room and they were taking bets to see how stupid I was. <gasps> he said, I bet all of them. What a, what a bunch of jerks. Well, yeah, you have to. What year in. was that? Not that it, anything's uh, different today. Uh, it was uh, 1983. It was November, 1983. Yeah. How did, how did you respond to that? I was like, I said, well, I'm glad you guys, I'm, I said, I'm, I'm, just like, I'm glad I didn't let you down. <laughs> And that, that, and then I realized, you know, that's what this is about, you know, and, and I realized that I, you know, with all the things going on and with this ruling and things like that, I had, you know, I had administrators like in sports telling me, I need to say this, I need to say that. And I'm like, I'm not saying that because I believe what they're doing is coming from a good place. And so I'm sitting there going, I'm not doing that. So I realized that, you know, my, not my coach, Lisa, coach Lisa was fantastic. My coach, he's, he's an amazing man. And he knew, and I found out pretty early that people use you to get things. They get, they use you to get trips to visit the schools. They want to recruit you. Um, they use you to get perks that I'm not getting that they're getting not my coach but other people and i started realizing that you know boy people are a trip 
Mm. And, I'm, I, and so that's why in, in, in some of the newspaper thing, things, I would say certain things that would be a little more, uh, I would say, provocative. And, and I did say the story, there's, is there somebody, I was asked, is there somebody out there, Malcolm, that didn't have any faith in you that you would like to say something to? You know, and I was like, the producers of the Today Show. No, I didn't. <laughs> no, I, I, I did tell the story about the teacher that yeah. said I was too stupid. Right. And I said, and I said, well, it doesn't really matter now. I'm getting to go to school. Well, they put that in the Jersey Journal. And I went to school. I don't know if I'm, it was in the Jersey Journal or the New York Times, one of the two. I don't think it mattered. I think it was the New York Times. And I say I walk in there and I get a thing. You need to go down to your guidance counselor for my homeroom teacher. I was like, okay. And Miss Oliver goes, Malcolm, did you see this article? I was like, yeah, I, I saw it. Who was the teacher? Mm-hmm. I was like, uh, I don't remember. So you're going to have to remember because the governor called the mayor. The mayor called the board of education. Board of education had called the principal. The principal. No, they're not wrong. That man, that man has no business teaching kids. And they said, who was it? And I was sitting there. And listen, I'm from Jersey. I'm from the hood. You know, snitch. I felt like I was snitching. And then she made me sit there until I, you're going to tell him. So lunch came and she brought me my lunch. And I sat there and she says, Malcolm, do you want him to do this to someone else? I said, no. So who was Mr. Phillips? Thank you, Malcolm. I found out that they asked him. And you know what he said? You don't think he's going to go to college? And like, and he goes, no, he said, no, I don't think it. I don't think he's going to graduate. I don't think he, 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 he stuck, he stuck to it. And for what I heard, if this is true, that they just said, uh, you can grab your stuff now. He was an older gentleman. So you can grab your stuff now. You're, you're done. You're done. And I was like, wow. I said, they had no choice. It was like, literally, I figured, man, at least lie about I was like, man, this guy really hates me. He's doubling <laughs> down. I'm sure he thought he, you know, pompous. He was yeah, pompous about he, it. He was right. He was like, this guy is a, a poser. Malcolm is an imposter. And he, he, he went on that. He died on that cross. He said, I'm going to die on that line. And, I, I, and that, that never, you know, changed. It changed what I believe about people and I'm like not everyone's good and there are going to be people that you've done nothing to that don't like you that's right and you've done nothing and the good news is what other people think about of you is none of your business you can move Mm -hmm. throughout your day and not give them no mind don't give them any power or energy Mm -hmm. and that's what you have to realize too one thing which i skipped over my during my preseason of my senior year um in the hoboken game I was hitting the back and I didn't realize it, but my disc was knocked out. So I played the whole, my whole senior year, my leg, my back got progressively worse and worse and worse. My foot would start dropping. I couldn't pick it up as high. And my coach, Coach Lisa, God bless him, said, maybe you go to Rutgers instead. You know, he, he knew I was deteriorating and I was stressed out um in pain constantly 
And my older brother had some substance abuse issues. So my mom wouldn't let me take painkillers. So I'm sitting there going through this. I got, again, I got hurt in August of 83, played the whole season. And I, to the point where my back was so bad, I wouldn't go past the Mississippi River in the sense of being recruited. UCLA was mad. USC was mad. They were saying, why won't you come out here? I couldn't make the trip. Yeah, because airplanes, man, they're hard enough on tall people. And so I was like, I can't do it. So I was really in pain the whole time and then mm-hmm. end up going. You, I'm sorry. Did you get it checked out? Oh, yeah. They knew. They said my disc was out. They couldn't fix it? Yeah, they had to cut me open to fix it. But who's going to take me if I was cut open? So I end up, again, I was like, oh, man, this is a, I can't get out. I won't be able to leave. Have a life. And I remember playing in the All-Star game. Now, this is July of 2000. I'm sorry, of 1984. And I'm just like a mess. And my high school coach is at the the All-Star game. And he's like, hey, don't play him, Malcolm, too much. Don't play him on offense. He can't play. He told the head coach there. And at that time, uh, Craig Hayward, who was – End up being in the pros called Ironhead. He was third in the Heisman. You had Gordy Lockbound, who was at Holy Cross, the first player to play both sides, and he was like fifth in the Heisman. You had all these consensus All Americans playing, and me. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't even stand up. I can't, you know, but I played and I played defense. And they were running away from me, and I'm trying to, I'm tackling people. I was only in there for 20 plays 25 plays and i had like seven tackles and i i was really playing well they were running away from me and i remember uh we were playing uh with coach caviello i think his name was and he was like this coach that was you know in new jersey history was really great but he was retiring the south i played for the north rarely won and we were winning seven nothing and we almost were about to win and I remember they put me back out there to play defense. And I remember they put this guy six foot nine and another guy six foot six to block me. They were going to throw, try to throw a touchdown. They needed this tie. And I heard my coach, my high school coach going, Mal, Mal, run by him. He's like, yes, you're that even as bad as I was, I was still quick. He said, don't even worry about it. And I remember they hiked the ball. Our defensive backs fell down. So they had the two wide receivers running down, I think, uncovered, wide open. And I ran by the guy, like my coach said, but my back was so bad. The quarterback there, he like saw me come and he ducked. And I was just like, because I couldn't stop myself because my back's so bad. But what I ended up doing was, as we talked about my arms, but as I ran by, I just grabbed him by his stomach. And grabbed the the shirt as I was running by, and then I just grabbed him and sacked him. That was the last play of the game, and we won. Oh wow! I thought that was illegal to grab clothes. Is it not? Oh no! I can for me to tackle him, I can grab. Oh okay. If I was on offense, I couldn't. Do it. So basically, ah. I, I saved the game, and, and then you see the. I'll send you the article written by begrudgingly by the New Jersey press, sports press. Goes, Christy silence critics. You know, basically, I'm like, well, you're oh, lucky you didn't get paralyzed. Well, that it was weird because by the time I got to Iowa, like a month later, 
I was, by that time I was having incontinent issues and my left leg just dragged. And Coach Ferentz, who was, we had Hayden Fry, who was a, a story coach there at Iowa. And now hate Kurt Ferentz, who's there now for 25 years. We had two coaches in 50 years. And he's going to go to the Hall of Fame. He's sitting there. They're all saying, Malcolm Christie's coming. He's coming. Everyone's like, all these articles written about me. I'm like, are you guys crazy? I can't even stand up. This is like the biggest whatever. And I get there and I look at the Ed Crowley, our, our um, head trainer. I go, I need to go to the doctor. And he looks at me. He goes, what's wrong? And I told him. He looked at me like, okay. They took me there. I broke the, they had brand new CAT scan. I broke it. That was too heavy. Oh, geez. So I broke the CAT scan. So I, I just, this was nothing going well for me. They're laughing and I heard them like, oh, we're coming in to get you, Malcolm. They find out that my disc was out. I was done for that year. So they had basically had to cut, cut my disc out and fuse my vertebrae together. But nice. the good news is it worked. Yeah, and I don't. I mean, I don't think it's a topic. I don't think we. I know they talk about it a bit because they talk about concussive mm -hmm. issues, but the level of damage being done to kids and college kids, and then again in the NFL for football, is just atrocious. It's and not everybody is a millionaire, and it's one of those things where you realize. I was until recently, probably in the last five years weighed well over three like 330 340 and now i'm down to two 245 i decided you look you look thin i mean yeah. not not skinny but, I, but you look slender I, yeah i had to because and i saw so many of my friends teammates are just so out of shape and so had health issues i'm like i don't want to die because i was fat and that was, that was my knock on me. If you look at, you know, it's so funny. I see Coach Ferentz now. And I go to town and he looks at me and he, he'll sit there. Well, why did you do this when you were here? I'm like, you know, some, I'm not going to have you body shame me now. I'm very happy with it. Now he's, 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 he's kidding. Somewhat kidding. He's still, because he wanted me to be this great ball player. And his mentor at Pitt uh, called um, Joe Moore wanted me to go to Pitt. And that was his mentor. And his mentor said, why go to Iowa and hide where I can make you a pro football player? And then I found out that Barron's comes in the gym and all of a sudden Joe's leaving. He goes, remember what I told you, Malcolm? I'm like, how do you guys both know each other? That's weird. Because I, you know, I don't know what's going on. But they probably went out and had dinner, had lunch before and going dinner afterwards. And he said, remember what I told you? And I, just, I said, okay. And Barron's goes, what did Joe tell you? He said, why go to Iowa and hide? When he could make me something, he said, Joe said that, really? I go, okay. And he's laughing. But I remember, you know, Kurt wanted me to be the best I could. And, and when somebody you idolize, which his coach, the coach that he worked for, uh, he idolized. And I was told that if Malcolm Christie is not a pro football player, it's all Kurt Ferentz's fault. That's what Joe Moore said. No pressure. You know who told me that? Coach Ferentz. I'm like, I said, what is Mr. Phillips? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, he said, so Lucy, your mentor told you that if it's all your fault, what is the purpose of telling me that story? I, I don't understand what he goes. I said, this is really awkward. He goes, I'm just letting you know. I'm like, oh, you did. And the reality is, 
they have a trophy for the best college football um, offensive line, and it's called the Joe Moore Trophy. So that tells you what that guy meant to my coach. And I understand his point, and, and he's a teacher by trade, he, and, he, and as a coach, you're a teacher, and he and he saw in me a lot of talent. But be honest, with all the injuries I had, and you had the fact that I wasn't very focused. I was out of shape and I didn't do all the things that were necessary to play. Those were my fault. Those are the things that I should have did better. And I realized later in life, I can't allow myself to get in the way. If I'm going to lose, let me lose on the merits, not because I didn't try hard enough. Mm -hmm. And that, that, and you know, the, the best thing in the world is I didn't go pro and do all this stuff. Cause I, I'd probably be a mess. Did you want, I mean, is this thing you actually wanted though? Having the crap beat out of you all the time on the field, did you want to go into the pros? Oh, not really. Cause I knew that I was not the player I was mm -hmm. and I knew that they were better. And they, if, this is what they did to me so far. Lord knows what those, what they're going to do to me physically playing against those, that level. And I said, you know, why do I want to do this too much? I need to go. And I failed out of school. And I had to decide. I said, I wasn't leaving Iowa City without a degree. I was not leaving that town. I said, I will stay here. Yeah, I'll, I will cut grass at the field of dreams. I will do whatever I need to do. <laughs> but I'm not going back to Jersey without a degree. I am not going to do that. And I stayed in Iowa until I... Yeah, I went back. I told the truth about my dyslexia because by the time I had to go back, I'm paying for it on my own. And I couldn't lie. I couldn't pass. I passed all these hard classes, but I had, I couldn't pass a math and I couldn't pass a language because you can't fake it. And math and, and language are the same thing. Math is a language. Exactly. And I, I, and then they, they tested me and they, the doctor goes, I want you to do the IQ test. And I did it. And it came out like 70 something. I went, she goes, I want you to answer every question, but I'm going to say it orally and you answer orally. And then she did it again. She goes, okay, you scored a 157. D doubled it. How long have you said, how long have you been doing this? Well, and how many kids like you didn't get a fair shake? like you weren't getting in a lot of circumstances because they were ashamed or didn't want to let on to the secret or, and they were just labeled dumb or incompetent or lazy or all those words that they throw around to kids but, and still do. And they still do. And I have talked, that's why I'm very much involved with the, uh, the uh, differently abled uh, people on campus and giving money to them to that organization because they helped me i wouldn't have got through without department of disabilities at iowa and i owe a debt to them that i can never repay not only about the accommodations they gave me but the confidence they gave me mm -hmm. and I, I i am so important for me and when i go back i sit with students and we sit there and we we i'm a former football player a hawkeye i i know that has some cachet even though I wasn't a great player. Um, but the point is that I'm, a, I'm actively a part of them. I said, I'm on, I'm on your team. Yeah. I'm not ashamed of it. That's and, great. And it's important because I know for a fact that several athletes have bailed out of Iowa 
because they didn't want to take the accommodations that were given to them because they were ashamed to know that they wouldn't be. And that we have to end that stigma. You lost an education at a fantastic university because you were ashamed to have to take it, take your test somewhere else. That's insane. Yeah. And so that's what's going on. And what do you do now? You work with a college fund. Do you? Do you- well, I, I used to do. It, it's one of those things where I've had like I moved around for my ex-wife's career. I was like married twenty years, twenty-one years, and as a partner to someone who um, I can honestly say suffered through some um, um, issues. Um, and I found myself taking care of that person because and they were very successful at her job. And I'm very happy that she's gotten the help she needed. But my job was basically in between doing all these other jobs is keeping us solvent in the sense of financially, even though she made a lot of money and doing stuff. But when you're dealing with, with that type of issue, that mm-hmm. you're, you're just like balancing plates and you're doing mm-hmm. all these things and at one trying to spend here, spend here. And luckily, we we both ended up in a way that financially we're in a good good place. And I allowed her to stay here during COVID, believe it or not. And hmm. my, my girlfriend, you know, Andy, was very nice about it. She's in Alaska, and she, I was always transparent with it. And you know, now she's doing well, and I'm that's why I'm happy, and that's why Andy's moving to Alaska and coming. <laughs> and but it's one of those things where I did not work. I basically took care. of of someone my whole time but i did volunteer a lot i did do a lot of different things to maintain certain skills and i was able now i'm in a position where i can go financially i don't have to worry about you know making a lot of money financially you know both me and my ex-wife made some really really great decisions um when we, we had to do those things so i can just do so now i'm looking to finish the book and then do I want to go to back to a nonprofit that I believe in and that they couldn't afford me uh-huh. if, if they had to pay me and they could pay me for a lot less and to do more. I think it's important to give back. It's important to give skill, give your skill set to other organizations where you can still be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And again, I wouldn't be where I am without these other people. And I have the opportunity to, to try to, you know, pitch things to Disney. I have things that opportunities. I never, I can't believe I actually have these opportunities to actually write things that have nothing to do with sports. I have a minor in women's studies. I, I literally, and when you talked about me talking about, I wrote in that one article about uh, women, uh, you know, in the national women's month, when I was back at Iowa and went back to get my degree as one of the few men to get a chance to write on that featured article back in 96 or 97, when we about to get my degree was finishing up, I wrote about cancel culture. Mm, interesting. I wrote, I wrote in the sense that I, I understood people made mistakes. I said, am I a male feminist? I said, well, have I seen a playboy? I said, yes. Well, I see one again. I said, probably. Have you ever referred to a woman as a chick or a babe? I said, yeah, I have. Have you ever I've done all these things? Yeah, I said, have you, have you, <laughs> would you, 
will you do it again? I'm like, maybe. I mean, I, I'm not, I, it's not what I do, but yeah, probably. I may, something like that. And I said, but I said, but that doesn't mean that I don't, I, I'm a misogynist. That is like someone saying that they say a, a kind of an off color racist, I mean, a, a, a racist joke that's kind of whatever. And they're a racist just from that one thing. I said, and I, my thing is like, you got to separate a instant of utterance of stupidity versus mm. a way of life a racist that's a way of life that's a life that's a lifestyle being a racist <laughs> that, you know and that's why i said and we have to be able to differentiate so people can make mistakes and learn from them for sure exactly and not yeah. throw them away and i said that back in 97 and i i did have to get pushed back from the editor the the back of the editor said well i think if you use a racist joke you're racist i said no no not really i i, I that's really you have bad taste yes and you're, you're an idiot and you're yeah. being a racist is it's more than one bad joke mm-hmm. you know if that's all it took to be a racist then everyone you know i you know do a bigoted joke and so i'm sitting here going it's more than that and that's one thing i learned by doing women's studies where everything is not as black and white if you will well that's the thing i think we've lost our concept of nuance and mm-hmm. uh, satire and mm-hmm. all sorts of things um there are plenty of not so great people in the world that say not so great things uh who have a lot of learning to do and there are some people that are just straight up hateful yes yeah the and thing that gets me though is when somebody's like oh you did this thing when you were 15 and now you're 30 therefore we're going to ruin your life you know that's a thing that and i think wow like there's no opportunity to grow at all that's no. interesting and that's- Maybe one thing if you said you did this really bad thing or stupid thing or hurtful thing or racist thing mm-hmm. and this is why and then the person if they go fuck off i'm going to do whatever yeah. i want that's one thing but if they're like oh my god I didn't know it or I was an idiot or I was, you know, 15 or it's not about making excuses, but it's also about understanding what is going on around the situation. I I totally agree. And that's why nuance is, is important. And I, I learned in my women's studies classes, because they say, okay, you're a black guy. You're, you're with us because it's mostly all white women. I'm kind of like, I know some white guys who are not, getting all the stuff that you're saying these white guys get i said you're, you're making a generalization yeah and i'm like not all white guys get this i'm i'm just i'm just spitballing it here i said not all white guys get all these things i i'm uncomfortable with you doing a generalization because i i think when generalizations happen i get kind of screwed on those too so mm-hmm. i'm just kind of saying i just want to have some type of thing and I, then i sat there um in my class and i sat there and i was like being women listen you're a white woman women of color got it differently than you gay women lesbians got different than you as a white heterosexual woman you as an attractive white woman you got it over someone who's maybe not as pretty as you i'm like this is a really weird conversation we're having with this kumbaya and stuff i'm like there is some nuance here and that's what i learned in women's studies that nuance even within a a, a group that what went and i and what it came down to dollars because I, I sat there and he said well women make 70 some odd cents to men and i grew up in the you know 
spend time in the Midwest, like 15 years. So I saw what, listen to Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. I said, well, well, if you break it down, white and Asian men make the most. And who gets that bronze medal? White women. And they, they, but what drags them down is how women of color are so underpaid. And it brings it down. So I'm like, I hear you, but you know, the, you know, the women's movement was essentially a middle to upper middle class white women's movement. Oh, absolutely. And you left out poor white women are not even involved in this. I'm sitting here going like. And uneducated. Yes. You know, I mean, that's the thing. The Venn diagrams that yes. is all of this stuff is a whole universe. <laughs> exactly. And but we just have to find a way to realize that. No, but you. Man, you have a lot more in common. I can tell this white guy that you, actually you have more in common with me than you have with with this white guy. Mm-hmm. But we we have this thing. We we pick sides. We decide all these things. And and one of the things I realize when I'm writing about my book, I write about race. And people say, "Well, what do you mean by race?" I said, "Yeah, you write about black white." I go, "Black white," but I write about because I grew up with a lot of my best friend in high school was everything I wasn't. He was, and I went to a very ethnically diverse, mostly ethnic white high school. So school is like the same high school that Nathan Lane and uh, Michelle Rodriguez graduated from. So it was like, you know, sit there. And it's one of those things where um, my friend, John, he was short. He was in the band. He was in theater. Hmm. He was a Jew. And he was gay. And he was my best friend. And people were uncomfortable with our relationship. How, and we would look at each other like his gay friends were saying, Why is Malcolm gay? Like, no, why y'all hang out together? He goes, I like Malcolm. He, he became vice president of the of, of senior class. I was president. He hung out with a friend of mine, Richie uh, Ortez's sister, Wanda. And I hung out with Richie. And Charlie or Ted. And then me and him started being friends. And we we were involved in school things and stuff like that. I'm like, why we have to, why do we have to? And even his gay friends were saying, why are you friends with him? He's like the jock. He's literally the personification of everything hetero. And he's like, it's not you. Why is it your problem? And and it's one of those things that we stayed friends until his death. And I was blessed. His mom, Marianne, and his sister, Marianne, um, felt that it was important enough for me to get part of his ashes. No. So I always wonder, and I talk to kids that I would now, especially when I started out with just the kids of color in the journalism school, and then, then I, and, you know, having input with all kids, I would talk to them. I said, you know, when I was in school, People used to give me a hard time, you know, because of the music I listened to. I, I love, I grew up in the early, mid 80s. I saw yeah. Huey Lewis on your wall and that one. Yeah, it's like, sorry, <laughs> it's like, like, it's, it's like <laughs> listen, I'm like, but I'm listening. I'm, I'm not going to apologize. I love Run DMC. I love Public Enemy. I love all R&B. It's like when they give you a box at birth and says, okay, because of your, you know, color, height, weight, uh, looks, whatever it is, when you, and, you know, sex, gender, whatever, all that's in this box is all you get to be. And that's yeah. it. And it's, it's such a bizarre 
idea. And it makes people uncomfortable that I'm like, I'm from Jersey. Why wouldn't I, I like, why would I not like the boss Springsteen and Bon Jovi? That is literally a birthright. I'm sitting here. Why do I don't like ACDC? Well, I like ACD. I love Def Leppard. I said, why can't I like, I don't understand. It makes me better when I take away, I limit myself, not expand my, I don't understand the addition by subtraction. I think it's because people, if you're okay with it and they're not okay with it, it makes them have to sit in that. Mm -hmm. It's weird that even black people get involved. It's like this little thing where we're okay with white people who sound black. Like, like, um, you know, we, we, you got like Eminem, you got, you know, Adele, you have all these different, I, I do more eighties groups and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Daryl Hall, you have all these blue eye soul, they call it. And then you got two black guys. You got Charlie pride was saying <laughs> country and hootie and they, and they get nothing but grief. And I understood. I'm like, what, wait a minute. But no, that's what drove me crazy that I had to profile myself. I'm like, you want me to profile myself? Mm -hmm. I, I, it's hard enough to have some people else. don't, they want to put you in a box. You're six foot six black guy, you know, who is, it was probably pretty intimidating when you walk yes. into a room, you command respect and presence. And so they have to throw all these labels on you to make sense in their small minds. Yeah. It's, and I mean, let's be honest, we're, we all have that. We, yes. every single one of us. And to say we don't is also not very self-aware no. as well. I, I, I will make, it was one of those things where I understood even my friend, John, when he was really out, he was more comfortable around his gay friends. And I think relationships are in, like, like a lot of things are an elastic nest. They expand and contract. I had to let go for a little while and then expanded again. I got back into the nest and I understood that because I loved him. He was my friend. And I understood that this was not easy for him to, to come out because of other, uh, you know, just other forces out there. And Usually I, in it, those days. Oh, no, it was, it was insane. So I would sit there and look at these things, but you would see people just be just kind of like, so, and then like, even his friends was like, so he, they, I would, he would, I come back and he's uh, hosting a party at his house and he's doing hors d'oeuvres, you know, and all of a sudden I, I'm in a circle talking to guys and you know, we're all having a good conversation. And I see this guy kind of lean back to, jo to, to John and says, you know, kinda, I see he's talking about me. I'm looking at the side of my eye going, okay. And then John goes, oh, no, 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 no. And then later that, later that evening, I'm sitting in, you know, talking to a couple of people and the guy comes over to me and goes, Oh, I think it's so nice that John has straight friends. It's like, Oh, it's like, Oh, it's like, it's good. You have a black friend. I'm mm -hmm. sitting there going, it's so good that you're straight and you're here. I'm like, well, thank you. We aims to please. And so I'm sitting there. So, but it's just, if that's a, just a human thing, but people, it is a human thing. And that's, that's why I say, let people be human and let people be vulnerable and let mm -hmm. people be all these different things. And I, if I can do anything in life is give people the space to be okay, to be, to want to grow. I mean, I always had this space in my teeth and that's why I'm kind of lisping here because I'm, I'm at the tail end of my, my, um, Invisalign are the best. I did them too. Uh, oh no. 
Make and, sure you wear your retainers. Oh, I will. I, and listen, I people have always told me, Malcolm, you have a beautiful smile. You have a great smile. I, I had a way of hiding this gap I had here. And because my brother, you know, was a kid, he, you know, he's having an episode and knocked my teeth out early. And, and I had a gap here and I was always insecure about it. And I said, you know something? I'm going to get in the middle line. And now it's closed and I smile a lot better now. People say, you've smiled bigger now. And I, and I always, but that was always a resentment I had for literally for my brother that I carried around with me forever. And I realized, get your teeth fixed. Okay. Just get them fixed. There's an, there's a way to fix them. Just go get your teeth fixed. Stop being mad about that. Okay. It, it happened. I don't, he doesn't even remember. And you still have these things. And I realized, boy, I really did carry some anger there, man. Yeah. And it's one of those things where I, I realized, boy, I, I still need to grow. I still need to grow as a person. And until the day we die, I hope so. And that is the key. And that's the why. So I, I always look at opportunities to, you know, to grow and, and to try to help other people and also accept help. Learn mm -hmm. how to accept it and say thank you and be okay with it. And again, a lot of this stuff seems like basic, but it isn't. It hard is, to human. <laughs> yeah, hard to be. Exactly. There you go. Well, Malcolm, how can people find you if they want to find you out there in the world? Well, you can find me, you can look up Malcolm Christie on Twitter. I will be more active on Twitter now. Um, I What's will your be, book called? I want to call it uh, Rustling in the Corn. I want to talk about my time at Iowa or, you know, and the leading up to Iowa and all the way to my graduation, because there's so much to be said about being, uh, you know, I always said I, I was born and raised in Jersey City, but I truly grew up in Iowa. Mm. Do, you, do we know when to look for the book this time next year okay you know, andy my girlfriend she's like vehement about it and you know iowa has one of the greatest writers workshops in the world i sit on the board of the school of journalism in iowa i know better and i'm in the headspace i need to get it done and i i just really am looking forward to just being able to talk about it and to be able to just show my you know, Iowa, unfortunately, just put, tried to put a bill pass uh, this week in the legislature to outlaw gay marriage. Now, this is not something, uh, I, and I get angry because this is not who Iowa is. And I, and I don't want people to think people from Jersey are you know, stupid and people from Iowa. I, so I went from one, I went to the, you picked the two states other than Florida that people make the most jokes about either Iowa uh -huh. or, or Jersey. Yeah, unfortunately, so, our politicians think they're speaking for themselves and their special interests and, and the people that give them money and not so much the people of the state. And, and, you know, Iowa people don't care if you're gay. They don't. And I, and I am vehemently, I, I love the people of Iowa. Now, people of Iowa are perfect. They're just, no, they're just as perfect as I am. And I'm not perfect. But it, it's just it's just not a representation of the people there. They they don't care. Uh, they just want to live and let live and do all these things. So I'm I'm very 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 um so you know very very protective of the people of Iowa. But I'm also very critical when need be because mm -hmm. no one can be as hard on you than family. And mm -hmm. and and I am family with that. So you can find me on Twitter, and I will 
you know, basically be doing more things. There's some things coming up that I am very excited about that will be being pitched to a, to a uh, studio that is really about Iowa. And I'm just really looking forward to this third, fourth, fifth act of my life to be as, as profound and, and fulfilling as, as I truly, really hopefully for it to be. And, I, and also what I want other people to have. I want people to be happy. Amen to that. Malcolm, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for giving, me, <laughs> giving this outlet. And, and, I, and again, I, I, I've listened to a lot of the, of the different podcasts that you have, that you've posted, and they, they are very, very enlightening. And they've really made me think. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye now. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.